From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 63. I'm excited for this one because I'm interviewing one of my absolute favorite athletes that I ever trained. Um, I know we're not supposed to play favorites, but this is a guy who immediately lights up a room and instantly wins people over with his infectious smile and honestly just a really wonderful guy who's devoted himself to making the world a better place. So this is going to be a really good interview that doesn't just talk about baseball, but talks a lot about the great things that he's doing um, back home in the Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest was born in the Bahamas, but came to the U.S. to attend American Heritage High School in Delray Beach, Florida, where he played baseball and football. As an outfielder, he was drafted out of high school in the 27th round of 2001 draft by the Orioles, but opted to instead attend Palm Beach Community College to play baseball. The girls again drafted him in the 27th round in 2002, but he instead headed to Vanderbilt. He was drafted by the Diamondbacks in the 12th round of the 2004 draft, but returned to Vanderbilt for a final season, after which he was selected in the 35th round by the Giants to start his professional career. He later earned his engineering science degree from Vanderbilt. He signed with the Giants in 2005 and worked his way up to AA before being released in 2009. After a brief stint in independent ball, he was signed by the Atlanta Braves prior to the 2010 season and worked his way up the organizational ladder over the next two seasons. He was called up to the majors for the first time on September 4, 2011 and recorded his first career hit off Clayton Kershaw in his first career major league at bat. In doing so, he became the sixth player from the Bahamas to play in the major leagues. In the years that followed, he played for the Orioles, Twins, Rangers, Yankees, Pirates, and Dodgers. He's perhaps best known for scoring the winning run on Derek Jeter's walk-off single in his final Yankee Stadium at-bat. 
After retiring in 2017, he was named the Toronto Blue Jays outfield coordinator in their player development department. In February 2019, he was named as a field coordinator and minor league outfield coordinator for the San Francisco Giants. And on December 23, 2019, he was named the first base coach for the Giants with the added responsibility of coaching Giants base runners and outfielders. Please welcome to the show, Antoine Richardson. Welcome to the show, Antoine. Thanks for having me, man, Eric. Um, pleasure to be with you today. This is going to be fun because you're the guy that literally goes into any room and you're like the governor. Like you win people over immediately. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have thousands of raving like Antoine Richardson fans. If we actually play baseball this year, they're going to be cheering for you. I mean, at least on TV because this, the stands will be empty, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're looking forward to it. So I, I think oh, that, man. so the best place to start, you know, I mean, and, and this is a, this is an awesome story. It's like a, I mean, somebody should make a movie about it, but you're the sixth, sixth player from the Bahamas to ever play in the major leagues. And I don't think people will necessarily just by hearing that appreciate what a big deal that is. Like, so talk to me a little bit about like the, the baseball culture growing up in the Bahamas, what it was when you were a kid and then what it's become now. Yeah. Um, so I'll actually, I, I will just use the word growing, and that's what it's it's been. The culture's just been kind of growing and and, and finding this identity um, throughout the years. But growing up, um, we didn't have baseball, so I, I you know we didn't we still don't have baseball in high school. So I grew up playing fast pitch softball, um, and we had like a, a men's league. Um, and I remember um, that when I was like younger, like um, we like a lot of the guys would go and play in this men's league but I, I had a friend and his dad um had a plot of land and basically on a farm and just kind of started um a baseball community um that's grown over like the last 20 30 years and um we just kind of throw, throw the baseball around on Saturdays and kind of start to learn the sport a little bit um but softball was my teacher um and then uh, over the years as I got playing it a little bit um you know, I was in, in the minor leagues with a couple other guys and fortunately got an opportunity to get to the big leagues. Um, and now I think the important part of what it is where it is right now. And I think right now it's a really up and coming um, spot uh, for baseball players. And I think you could see it throughout uh, like the minor league system, a lot of really cool prospects with good opportunities to get to the big leagues, man. So um, it's still, I, I would say the, the, the culture is still um, finding its identity. Mm-hmm. Is is the perspective of of you know if you're a 16 year old in the Bahamas is the goal just to get to the U S and be seen? Are are guys getting scouted? You know, actually in the Bahamas, like what's the what's the dynamic for a guy who's a who's a good athlete and with potential there to actually get to to the U S to play? So this is a tricky question, man. I, I usually can't. I, I usually get a little uh, I get a little kickback on this one. But <laughs> my my um, you know I. I have not been a fan of the of the model of you know get 16 years old and just trying to sign you know yeah. um, I've um, I've always been, I've been of the, the mindset of understanding your situation obviously and, and making it an individual thing and figuring out like do I need to go to school and do I need to develop a little bit more um, and so I think it has shifted a little bit right so the the culture right now is a lot of young men the thought is like what do I have to do to sign and. Um, that actually breaks my heart when they ask me that question, to be honest. And I, cause I want them to ask the question, what I, what do I need to do to get to the big leagues? Um, and then we can kind of talk about like what that path, um, yeah. could look like. Um, and so I'm a big advocate on, on kind of just continuing to educate these young men, mm-hmm. 
about their different opportunities because I think the path to like ultimately where they want to get is just going to look so different and unique for each and every one of us. And um, it's just important that they understand that and not feel as if they have to to rush to that point um, to get signed to start to start that career. Um, so ultimately, um, it, it is. I think it is a it's growing right now in in sense of like guys uh, want to sign at sixteen. Um, but I'm hoping personally, um, just to kind of just continue to educate educate um, our young our parents and as well as our young players. Um, so that they continue to make um, they continue to make informed decisions about their, their futures. Absolutely. I mean, do you see a, a trend of players starting to recognize like this is something that you know you can leverage baseball to get a great education that might not otherwise be there for you? And and if so, like what's the path that I know? Obviously, you you came to the U.S. when you were how old? Um, I was 14 years old when I came okay. to the U.S. Um, but you no, know, not as yet. I you know, and I think um, the it, the the narrative hasn't hasn't gotten around yet where it's like, Hey, I could use this to leverage it a little bit more for these other things. Um, and I, so once again, I do think like we're still because our culture is still growing and we still um, need to play a lot more baseball in the Bahamas. Um, you know, and I think when that opportunity comes around, you know, um, being able to get guys to play, play a little bit more, um, we could have an opportunity to develop them a little bit better um, which is going to create more opportunities for them um, to go to schools and have access to scholarships um, you know, and I think the challenge is right. The challenge is fi- financially too. It's really expensive, right? To to yeah. play to to go to college, and if you're not going to get a scholarship, um, that's another hurdle. Sometimes you have to you have to get over, and um, eleven point seven scholarships uh, in college with baseball and like um, Bahamian players not necessarily qualifying for financial aid. So th- it is a big hurdle. It's a lot of hurdles, and I think um, you know one of the plans is just continue to to, to research and find information on how uh, we could help players get more those opportunities, find money for them to get to college. Because I do think like we have a lot of talented young, young players and a lot of them are, were going to miss that opportunity to get to the big leagues because they would have started their career too soon. And I know that might sound kind of crazy and wild, but I think um, a couple of them would benefit from spending a little time developing in college um, for a couple of years, whether it's a junior college, a uh, four-year four program before taking that journey. I, I love that. We're going to come back and talk about your your awesome work um, with Project Limestone. So we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. But I'm, I'm curious. Let's let's talk on your story a little bit. So, you know, <laughs> I read up a little bit on you, and I, I already know you well, but it was good. I had to do some extra prep on this. And um, so how does a kid who's cut from his seventh-grade softball team in the Bahamas wind up being an all-state player in Florida and a, and a graduating uh, salutatorian at his <laughs> high school. I, I was a salutatorian too, so you're in good company. So, what, 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 what was the uh, what was the the kind of trend that got you there, and what changed? You know what? I think um, it was just making the most important thing the important thing, and I think it was just I, I wanted to have fun, and I think like you know I think it's two parts, right? So it's, a, it's an educational component and it's an athletic component. From an athletic side, I want to have fun, and I want to play with my friends, and so <laughs> that in itself made me decide like you know after getting cut it's like all right what do i have to do to be able to play with my friends and have fun mm-hmm. and i just and that was my and that was my focus it was just like and then i just went out and i just continued to to train and not that i knew what i was doing but i just mm-hmm. was out there trying to do stuff to get better mm-hmm. and um eventually just got to a point where i was good enough to get on the team you know because when i got on the team um it was an opportunity to play but i was i was a hell of a cheerleader i'll tell you that <laughs> <laughs> and then um it just each year you know you just continue yeah. you know, to, um, 
to try to improve a, a little bit at a time um, by just doing what you think you need to do until you, and you get some guidance from different people along that path uh, on what you could do. And the next year, you you know, you get you're playing a little bit, you're on the bench. And then before I knew it, you know, I was um, I had an opportunity just to play a lot more, and and then just kind of allowed my athletic ability to be to be a friend to me, um, and just try to really embrace the uniqueness of of the skill set. Um, and then from an academic standpoint, I think. Um, once I got to America, um, it was just laser focus. And I think once again, my mo- a lot of my motivating things is just the country in itself. And I knew that once I got to the U.S. that um, this was an opportunity, an opportunity to create um, a pathway for more Bahamians and young people to have opportunities. And I just wanted to be responsible with that opportunity. And so it was going to be really important that I was a, a good ambassador for our country Um and so I wanted to be a good ambassador on both sides, both sides of the thing. I went on and off the field. And so um, it was just important to me. Um, once again, I got to the first step, to the first statement, right? Um, yeah. Making the most important thing, the most important thing and making it really important. And, and because that, uh, that the responsibility of creating this pathway and being an ambassador um, just drove me into my books a little bit more which just allowed me to um, end up, you know, graduating a salutatorian. I don't think people realize like that's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sing your praises a little bit. Like that's a really big recognition for, you know, for someone at that age to recognize that you're, you're also paving the way for future generations. I'm not sure that a lot of 16, 17 year olds actually think like that. Um, and, I, and I feel like you've thought like that to this day, you know, there's always been like a, a perception of looking out for the next generation. Is that something that's, that's drilled into you like early at a young age in the Bahamas, or is that something that you feel like you acquired over the years as a, as a responsibility as you became more front and center as a you know successful athlete? So I, I think it's definitely just a culture in the Bahamas where it is this thought of like um, a village is going to raise a child. And I think, um, you know, like growing up without a father, um, I think, you know, being able to like be around my uncles and my grandfathers who kind of stepped in for that role is just understanding like how important they all played that role in, in taking care of me and them, them wanted to be a part of just like being a support for me. And I think, um, you know, watching my grandmother um, just take care of so many people, um, it just, it just started, to be, it became ingrained in me. Um, and you just, you know, you just kind of get to the point where it's, you understand that like, man, like it's really important to take care of your brother or take care of um, of the people around you, um, and making sure that like you leave you leave places better and you better than you met them, um, and so that the person behind you could really enjoy what you just had an opportunity to enjoy. And so to answer your question, I, you know, it's just um, I just think I think a lot of it's embedded in our culture because yeah. we're just so small and we're just like really connected, mm-hmm. um, and you just know everybody, so you just want to be responsible with that. Absolutely. So out of high school, you turned down a full ride to Brown University. Uh, to stay, you know, closer to, you know, your new home in South Florida, you went, you went to Palm Beach Community College. So fill me in on the rationale for that. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about your, your Vandy experience thereafter. So I don't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, like, even when I reflect and I try to think like if I had a good reasoning behind it, I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. I know this. Um, so I was going to go to Brown to play. So football was the main thing I was going to go to Brown to play. I was going to, I was like, I remember the football coaches were the ones that were really engaged with me mm-hmm. and I was going to have an opportunity to play baseball as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just like, I'm, I was a young man from the Bahamas and I was going to be the first person from my household to like um, go to college. And um, I think a lot of it was just a lack of information on my part. And I just didn't necessarily recognize how like prestigious like Brown University was. And so 
for me, it's like, and I'm glad I didn't, right? Because now it was, it was, it, I was able just to make an authentic decision based on like what I guess um, was in my heart. And I realized that at that point in time, I was like, well, I don't know if I really want to do football. And, um, and I recognize that I'm like five, six or five, seven on a good day, 160 pounds. And, and I just didn't want my mom cringing every time, every Saturday um, to watch me run around the field uh, football. <laughs> And so I think that allowed me to kind of like, you know, reconsider. And, you know, at the same time, I had an offer to go play baseball at the Citadel. And so, um, but what really threw a wrench into everything, I got drafted that year as well. And when I got drafted, it really put me in a bind because I, I didn't know what to do. I remember calling my mom and I was like, hey, I just got drafted under the do. And she asked me, she's like, what is a draft? <laughs> and so, Was the response, um, mom, it's what's going to happen the next <laughs> 15 consecutive years for me. You were drafted like 27 times. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, and so at that point in time, it was like really just trying to, trying to just make the best decision. And at that time I had the scouts calling me and like, Hey, like you, you, you need to, you need to sign. And, and, you know, I just think education was ingrained in me. And so I was like, you know what? I just, I need to go to school. And so I was getting ready to go to Citadel and it's like, wait, like I'll find a junior college. Maybe I find a junior college and then you don't, you know, you don't have to commit for, X amount of years, and then you could, um, you know, maybe sign off their first year. And I don't know, it just got to a point where I was like, um, it felt right. And, and once again, I can't tell you exactly what it was, um, but I think the flexibility of being able to go to a junior college, and I'm sure, yeah. you know, being close to home played a role yeah. um, in making that decision. And so I wish I had like a bad explanation to be like, no, this is what the sign was. But I, I think it was just lack of information, but I'm really happy with the decision. <laughs> well, you were, and think about it. So you were, and then you were drafted again after your your year at at uh, junior college, and then turned it down, but wound up going to Vanderbilt. So, uh, what I, I don't think a lot of these people know is, so we're talking about two thousand two, is when you started the fall of two thousand two, was it, right, Vandy? Mm, two two thousand three. So two thousand three. Yeah. So, but yeah. either way, you were you were at Vandy before Vandy is what we know it as today, right? You were there in the early days. Um, yeah, you know, I, I know you and you and you and Flash have uh, Ryan Flaherty have had some good conversations about it. Like, what what attracted you to it back then? You know, and obviously it, it surged forward in the time that you were there as well. What what was different about Vandy then versus now? Yeah, um, ooh, good question. So, Coach Corbin was in his my first year at Vanderbilt was Coach Corbin's second year. Um, I think just initially, um. Coach Eric Backage, who was the, who's the head head coach at Michigan, uh, when he came down to um, when he came down to Florida and he recruited me, I just remember um, our time together. We just connected right away, and so I think right from there it was it was a good sign. He was just very genuine. Um, I remember um, just going to dinner and what that looked like, and and it just felt at home. And ultimately, um, I went on a visit up there, and I just <laughs> I, I'll tell a funny story with Eric, but I went on a visit up there, and I just remember. Um, thinking, um, what a cool opportunity to get a really cool education, a really good education, and play against the best country, the best competition in the country. And I also recognized at that time that I was a really athletic person and not necessarily a baseball player. Mm-hmm. And and so at that point in time, I recognized if I did take that opportunity to go to University of Miami or the University of South Carolina, um, I might not have gotten an opportunity to play right away, but I felt I felt like I was going to have an opportunity to compete right away at Vanderbilt and get a chance to play. And that was important, right? Coming back to the original question that you asked me is like, what's the, like making the most important thing the important thing? And, and it was mm-hmm. to have fun. I want to play. And so um, that kind of led me to Vandy. It's just the opportunity to play. 
And then ultimately, I remember I was on my recruiting trip, and it was the first weekend of like SEC series play. And I remember, and it was the first recruiting trip I went on. I didn't go to any of those other colleges that were calling me um, at, at this point in time. I was supposed to go to South Carolina after this. And so it was 65 degrees, and I'm in the press box about to watch the game. And I said, I said, Coach, um, I was like, if, if it gets any colder than this, I can't come. And I was like, <laughs> and he says to me, he's like, Antoine, this is as cold as it gets. <laughs> and my first practice was, was in snow. So, but um, once again, I don't regret the decision one bit. No doubt. I mean, Vanderbilt's obviously become something pretty spectacular. What, what do you think it is about Coach Corbin that, you know, what, what I think, and I love talking to Tim. He's always an amazing guy to converse with. But, you know, it's one thing to be successful. It's another thing altogether to sustain success like he has and continue to improve. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're talking about something that, that happened, you know, a long time ago. What, what are we, 18 years past that? Or excuse me, 17 years past that? What is it that's made, um, you know, it's such a, you know, a tradition that's carried forward? Yeah. So I think, um, I think first and foremost, he just, he just cares about people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he's just made that important. And, um, and it's just something that's authentic, right? So he does it. It's not something that he's just doing to get, to get people to come to the school. He just really, wants what's best for everybody that walks through that, those doors and he wants you to leave that program um, a better human being and I think in that process um, you just become you know and it's probably cliche but you just become a family and you just be, and you just really care about care about the next person and so um, I just think that has allowed um, us to thrive um, and then obviously like he's just he's smart right and um, yeah. in terms of and he's been a, been a really good student of the game, and he's a really good teacher. Um, but the one thing that I would say that I've recognized um, and, and learned to appreciate more over the years is just his ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, he knows what he needs to be for any particular person at any given time, and then he knows what he needs to be for that particular team in any given year. And I think that in itself has been really refreshing just to watch unfold and how um, he's – he's been able to have the sustainability. And I think a big role in that is just his ability to adapt to um, what's thrown in front of him. I feel like every conversation you have with Corbs, he's always, he's always asking a lot of questions. He's doing a lot of listening. Like he's always trying to find what's working and, and what is it in different scenarios so that he can figure out how to apply it at Vandy. I just, I, that's always a takeaway from me from every dialogue we have is he wants to learn. Absolutely. All right. So we got, we got shift baits. It's your, it's your turn to, uh, to teach here. So in your career, <laughs> you swiped 331 bases and were caught only 58 times. Um, that's an 85% six race rate. But what's, what's most impressive to me as you go and you actually look at it is that your still percentage got even better as you advanced to the higher levels. In fact, I don't think you've ever been thrown out in the big leagues. And there was like a, a year in, I think in AAA with the Yankees where it was like 26 out of 27 or something like that. in AAA. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, like, what was it? I mean, you were always fast, right? And theoretically, you, you probably didn't get faster as, the, as time went on. And you aged a little bit, and the seasons got longer and longer, and you're playing in the outfield every day. So I'm curious, like, what is it that made you a, a better base dealer over the course of time? What lessons did you learn that you can pass on to the, the, the coaches and players that are listening to this? Well, I defied um, everything about the human body, and I did get faster. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, um, like, so like I said earlier, I think, for a long time, I I, uh, I got by on my athletic ability, and obviously, I think that's helped me, you know, through the whole process. But um, just became 
smarter, right? And I and I don't think I lost my aggressiveness. It just became smarter and and recognized like what I what I did really well, um, and just really tried to find ways to like make that strength um, better. So um, just understanding pitching tendencies and and kind of looking to see what they were doing and starting to understand exactly what my body was doing, right? And and understand like how I how I can get better jumps. Um, and how can I extend my leads and, and whatnot? So um, I just think I got smarter. And I know it's probably not like the the um, the philosophical answer or the great answer, but I just got a little bit smarter. And, um, you know, I just I just um, really um, worked on the craft, like worked on the jumps and, and yeah. studied the pitchers um, and didn't let didn't take any second for granted. I say, did you watch video of, of opposing pitchers? No, I didn't. And I think it was just more, it was more because I don't know how um, accessible I, I, it was for me and or, or how, or if I just didn't even know how accessible it was. And so yeah. I would, um, I would just kind of try to keep a little mental, mental note uh, on them. I, I, I did a really good job of being able to remember guys. Yeah. Um, but I'll find out one thing and I'm just like, all right, this is my thing, you know? And then I think this, and then another part of it maybe doesn't help, but just that competitive competitiveness of just wanting to like, be really good at this and I knew yeah. that this was my speed was my thing and I would honestly I would just I would be more frustrated when I got thrown out than like any other aspect of the game like if you wanted me to get emotional yeah. like it's when I got thrown out because I just demanded like I demanded like success I demanded I demanded like I should never I thought I should never got, get thrown out <laughs> I mean so you know it's it's interesting now that you're your first base coach for the Giants it's like the perfect role for a guy who took that much pride in stealing bases so it's going to be fun. Uh, it's fun to ask ahead. Um, but we can't have a conversation about base running without talking about the Jeter walk-off, right? Like how, how, many, how many million interviews have you given about this? <laughs> this is the first one. First one. There you go. So I'll, I put this, I'll, get, I'll put my unique spin on it. I'm on a JetBlue flight. Uh, I believe it was from Florida back to Massachusetts. And it was basically the entire sporting world was panning back to Jeter. So they were switching every station back to it. So I think I had like SportsCenter on while I was working on my laptop. And I look up and they're going to Yankee Stadium as Jeter's coming up for presumably his last at bat. And in your pinching, I'm like talking to myself and like, I can't even talk to anybody about this. Like I can't text my wife, anything like that. <laughs> I'm like, Antoine's pinch run. And so what's going through your head as you get pinch run or as you pinch run in the ninth with, uh, with Jeter coming up? So it was a, it's just, oh man, it was a lot of emotion. So the whole time you're watching this game, you're like a fan because you're like recognizing like what's happening in front of you, right? Last game yeah. at Yankee Stadium. And like, I wish I could say I was locked in the whole game in terms of like as a as a teammate, but I was like literally just enjoying this. I wish I had popcorn on the on the bench, to be <laughs> honest. And um and so like now we go into the ninth inning now, and if you remember we go into the ninth inning, I wanna say we had a a three run lead going into the ninth inning. And we bring our closer in who's been lights out the whole year. And so I'm still just enjoying this moment of like watching this and the fans and shouting and it's just really, really loud and you're just like, wow, like I've never experienced nothing like this in my life. And I remember like CC was on the bench and CC's like, man, it feels like a playoff game tonight, you know? And it was just like so unreal. And all of a sudden, I think like Adam Jones is like a two run home run. And I think like somebody else hits a solo shot and it's like five, five. And I'm just like, oh crap, I better get loose. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I started to get loose, anticipating that, you know, like I might, they might use me in the next inning. Um, sure enough, Jose Perella comes up, gets a base hit, and then I get the first base. And I think even still at this point in time, I recognize that Gardner's going to bunt. And so I'm not like really like frantic about anything, you know. 
so he gets it down to get the second base. And I think when I get the second base, not recognizing that Jeter was coming up, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> and like all of a sudden, like, you know, you get the chant that everyone, Derek, Jeter. And it's just like, and I'm literally, I feel like I was in a movie as I sit on, sit, stand on second base. I look up into the stands and I, I feel like it was like little big league or like, I can't remember the, the, the movie, but when the guy just walks up for the first time, he's just like mouth open and just like, oh my goodness. And that's how I felt. And I literally remember telling myself, like, I had to, I had to like, hey, wait, 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 wait. You got a job to do, right? Wasn't, uh, and, wasn't uh, Flash playing third, too? Wasn't he busting your he chops? He was. <laughs> Flash was playing third base. Uh, I can't remember. Um, what wasn't the line, like, he's going to make you famous, Tuan, or something like that? I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, but... So anyway, so I so I get there and I'm I'm on second base and um just really I'm, honestly I'm really enjoying the moment and I'm glad I did right like um because I think sometimes we're so locked in to execute that we forget to enjoy the moment I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing like and I'm I'm like thinking little guy from the Bahamas like and this is like unbelievable like what I'm getting to experience right now um and then I I, I kind of lock in right and so I just appreciated the fact that I was able to like enjoy those ten seconds but then I locked in and um you know I I just was. I got ready and he obviously hit the base hit and I get going. And I thought, I thought Thompson was going to, was going to um, stop me at third base. Cause it was a really hard hit ball. Marquez was in right field. Um, and so I kind of start to slow up right as I about to hit the bag, anticipating that I was going to get the stop sign. And then all of a sudden I see him waving me home and I'm like, Oh crap, I got to go. And so, I like turning on the burners, like even trying to turn on even more. Cause now I'm, as I'm running, I'm recognizing that like, um, one, this is, this could be a potential winning run. Two, if I get thrown out, I might not be able to leave the stadium for a couple of days. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm just like, and I'm thinking like, I just got to find a way to score. I don't care what I do, find a way to score. And, um, and I get close. I get close. I see Caleb Joseph starting to prepare to receive the ball. And I'm like, holy crap. Like this could end, this not, might not end well. And um, I never dive head first. I think that was the first time I ever dove head first in my <laughs> my career at home plate. But it was like one of those situations, like by all means necessary, you got to make this happen. A part of it was so I could so I could be able to leave Yankee Stadium. But then two, just wanting to like create that moment or be a part of that moment mm-hmm. for for Derek, right? Like I was like, what a like what a crazy and awesome way for him to leave Yankee Stadium. Um, and it slid in, man, and 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 um. I just remember the umpire saying safe because McCann was telling me to slide and I didn't know what to do. I was like, should I be excited? So I jumped up halfway and I got back down. And just like, <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty cool, cool moment, man. And I, uh, once again, I get to say this a lot in this story, but I'm really glad that I had a chance to experience that. I'm really glad you were safe too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably not as glad as you are. Um, so, all right. So that, obviously that's an incredible experience, but that's one of eight organizations that you played for. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it goes without saying that you enjoyed your time with some more than others. I'm curious if there were like certain takeaways along the way from, you know, you started out with the giants, obviously, and you, you know, you spent time with the pirates, you spent time with a, you know, a bunch of different organizations. Were there certain ones that stood out that, you know, were, were impactful in the lessons that you took with you, especially now that you've, you've moved to the coaching ranks, things that you recognized back then that were awesome that you wanted to make sure that are a part of your baseball experiences moving forward. Yeah. Um, but I, to answer that question, yeah, I think it was a, a lot of really cool experiences. And I think, um, I think, it, you know, 
just to be fair to the other coaches in my life, like it, it happened from before pro yeah. ball, you know what I mean? And take and, and stealing some of those experiences. But I just think um really the coaches that were just really empathetic and the coaches that like um really cared about their players and how and found a way to show you that. And I think also like the the coaches that um had 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 the ability to kind of like what I talked about Corbin earlier, like being able to uh, adapt to whoever whoever he's dealing with. And I think the coaches being able to understand that like I have to use different cues and I have to use different language um, with different people to help them get to the objective. Um, and I think um, I think teams that spent a lot of time investing in that development for their coaches and making them aware of it were the teams that. Um, you know, were successful. And I, you know, and I, you know, they, I think they all had their, had their pros. Um, but at the time, uh, I remember when I was with the Braves organization, I thought, I thought it was really cool. I just remember having this feeling as a player that the Braves player development group, it felt as if they, they really were confident that they could make anybody a major league baseball player. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. I just remember feeling as a player that, and they were going to teach you um, so well that you're going to have that opportunity. And sure enough, um, you, you looked at their you looked at their team and you saw so many homegrown players and it was yeah. like like wow like they just do a really good job of, of making sure like you know they executing these details um but ultimately um i just think a lot of it it was just like the, the one thing i think stands out is just like the coaches who had the ability to um use different languages use different cues and figure out like okay like just recognizing it's not a one exercise fix all or one word fix all and, and 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 them working really hard to figure out how do I get through to this particular player to make sure that um, he can tap into this thing that I see. Mm-hmm. As you look back, like, uh, and now that you're in the coaching ranks, um, you know, I have to assume it makes you, you ponder like a lot of the coaches and the cues you've, you've received over the years, you know, like what cues, what coaching strategies, what drills made absolutely no sense to you? You know, like what practice would you change that, you know, what were the things that drove you nuts that you'll never use yourself? Ooh. Um, so once again, right, I feel like if I say, I feel if I say right now, like is this thing I would never ever use, mm-hmm. like I feel like I would be limiting myself. And the reason yeah. I say that is because just because I thought it was silly and I thought it was eyewash doesn't mean that it's not going to be something corrective for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I definitely need to respect that. Right. So, um, but I do know. I wish I. I, I do wish I, no one told me to hit the ball on the ground and run. I do know <laughs> that, right? Yeah. Um, but, but outside of that, to be honest, I don't. I can't sit here and tell you today. Like, um, this is just one thing that I hated, and I feel like I never, I never did, other than maybe hit the ball on the ground and run. Mm-hmm. But because I do think that that one movement, as silly as it might be, or maybe like could be corrective for someone else, it just didn't work for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I keep them all in my toolbox. Yeah. What what have been the biggest adjustments for you as you've transitioned from playing to coaching? Um, like, are there are there certain things that you've had to learn, like that, you know, cues that worked for you that don't work for someone else? Or what, what's your take on it? Yeah, honestly, I've just tried to keep it really, like, simple. And I, and I just try to remember that, like, um, what, first and foremost, is like, how do you transfer information, right? And so how do you yeah. get, um, like, this stuff that you have to somebody else? And so for me, it's just like what we're doing right now, just being able to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And identifying where people are going on, going going home with people, and so that you could you could be able to have them open up. Um, and I think, like ultimately, the way I try to approach it is um, is three things, right? So one is I wanted to, I want everything to be rooted in simplicity. So I just want everything to be as simple as possible when we get into to that particular player, and that looks different for each player, mm-hmm. right? 
But our goal is how can I simplify it as fast as I can for this particular player. So think about how complicated a season is. We um, 200 games, you're traveling all this time. You, um, you're not getting all the sleep that you need, all the numbers and data. And so like yeah. for me, it's like, how do I take away from that? How does it subtract from that? And so just trying to simplify anything I give them. The second part is just like really, really being empathetic, right? And just really respecting the fact that they have gotten to this point. And mm-hmm. and they got to this point for a reason. And so respecting the fact and honoring that first and foremost. And and then the second part of that is challenging challenging that. Um and give it challenging them with new ideas and concepts to allow them to maybe explore something else that they didn't think about. But I think it starts with making sure that you honor what they have done, right? And you don't want to come in there and just be like, you need to do it this way. Um, you know, so my approach is just making sure they honor what they've done, respect that. And then the last piece to it is um it's promoting creativity. And and what I mean by that is like I just try to stay away from comparisons and um to other people because I, I feel like it just if I'm asking if I'm asking myself to be like Eric Cressy, then am I gonna give myself an opportunity to be better than Eric Cressy, right? Um and so I think it's just asking them to say, Hey, like how good can you be? How unique can you be? How can we use these the skill set that you have mm-hmm. and just make you flourish for who you are and make make your name for yourself yeah. and so i think that was a lot but those but those are the three things that i like really try to like emphasize in, um whenever i'm working with with a, with a, with a player and you never want to like you know it's a, a brian cap of mine we use often it's like don't coach the different out of somebody sometimes it's leveraging yeah. the different that makes them you know a special big leaguer yeah. So real quick, and I would say to that is like, I, um, Gene Glenn, like one of the, one of the guys I like really respect in the game and like, it was a tremendous coach to me. And I think, you know, I, I called him when I first started coaching the advice he gave me was he's like, Antoine, he's like, sometimes the players are going to be able to do stuff that you can't teach. Uh, and that's like right there with, with Brian saying. And so it's yeah. really important to like understand that and just like, Hey man, I ain't even going to mess with that. I don't know what it is or, or, or what's going on, but he's, He's getting there really, really quick. I don't know if I want to mess with his jump. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and I imagine you, I imagine you find similar things when you, you know, you, you're training with, 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 with um, players, with athletes. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, now you're talking, you're tasked with developing outfielders and base runners in addition to your, your work as a first base coach. So let's talk about some low hanging fruit for, you know, let's, let's say high school athletes on both fronts. So if you want to work with, um, you know, base running first, like what, what are you teaching in that younger population um because we both know like you can win a lot of high school games just by being Mm -hmm. crazy aggressive on the base paths and making pitchers and catchers uncomfortable um where do you start you know in terms of dealing with those younger athletes and and honestly like it probably feeds into what do you see in these these guys that get into pro ball and they just they don't have some of these core competencies locked down yeah so i think the first thing is just um understanding um your value, right? So understanding what you have, the value of your output. So at any given point in time, like um, how important is your out at any given time, I think is, is a good thing to understand. And, I, and what I mean by that is like, is the worth, is the risk worth the reward? Um, but to simplify it even more, I just think, I think of two things, right? Always know where you're at. And so um, always know where you're at on the field. Because um, if you know where you're at, you, I feel like there's a comfort level to that, right? Um, if I, and I, I, I use this with some of the players now and I say like, if, um, if I drop you in the middle of the jungle without, without a GPS and I tell you, find your way somewhere, how confident do you feel? And then 
they say, if I drop you in the jungle, in the middle of the jungle with a GPS and I actually get somewhere, how confident do you feel? And it's always just like understanding where you're at. So that just gives you some comfort and you just know maybe how you can stretch your limits one way or the next. And then the next part of it is just like, how do you continue to create movement, right? So like a body in motion stays in motion. So when we take in our leads and these different things, like can we can can we stay in continuous movement unless we're on the base, right? We're diving back or we're getting a sign, but like how do we create continuous movement? And even like like, you know, from a from a steel break standpoint, right? Like I might create some type of rhythm in there, some type of movement to be able to like to flow into that into that break. Um so those are the two things I would I would I would I would I would encourage um, young players to to focus on, other than getting as fast as you can. <laughs> I mean that goes without saying too. You know, what is the saying? Speed never goes into a slump. So. Yeah, that's that's what they said. But I, I went into a lot of slumps, <laughs> man, Eric. So. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't have been swinging down. Maybe that's what it was. Right? <laughs> um, so let's talk about the actual outfielder side of things, right? Because we're, we're you know, we've had AJ Pollock on and, um, you know, talked to Colton Wong a little bit more, the infield side of things. And, you know, it's, it's always cool to see guys that, you know, they, they always talk about, you know, that, you know, home runs get love and contract negotiations and all that stuff, but, but defense is, is important, but, you know, it just doesn't necessarily get the attention that it probably deserves. Um, from an outfielding standpoint, um, what do you see on the, the youth levels? And then obviously what do you, what do you work on the most with your, your big league guys? Yeah. So, so first about the defense and the love part of it. Um, I think, um, I think it's some guys like, uh, there's a lot of guys, uh, <laughs> never mind, but there's a lot of guys that are making a lot of money that, that are really good defenders. <laughs> just leave it at that. Yeah. But, um, Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of correlation once again with speed. So I had to work a lot with, um, with our, uh, uh, um, strength training department. Right. And I think, Speed is a big correlation, I think, between speed and, and being able to make some of those plays. But I've also seen guys like Alex Gordon that um, haven't necessarily always ranked um, as the fastest guys in the league, but still win gold gloves. And so um, just really focusing on on how fast can you get to top speed. And so a lot of the stuff we like to talk about is like, how can we own the first couple of steps and get to get to top speed as fast as we can? And I think um, I like to start there. Um, and then find creative ways for each individual to be able to, to do that. Um, and then after that, you know, you, you start to work on some other things, right? Whether it's, um, you know, our routes, um, you know, just, and then just staying athletic. Mm-hmm. Um, like just encouraging guys, like just catch the ball, but try to stay as, as athletic as possible. And it does, does that mean like, um, you know, you don't have to get behind every ball if, if like being more athletic is catching it with one hand to make a spin throw. Um, and so, those would be two things, man. I'm, I'm always telling guys, hey, let's win those first couple of steps um, and let's stay athletic. Awesome. And does that apply like to the big leagues as much, or are we, or is that an assumed by the time you're actually playing outfield in the big leagues? No, I think I, I, I try not to assume anything, man. I just try <laughs> to like um, once again back to that empathetic part of it. Just understand what they, you know, what they know and what they've done, um, and just kind of encourage them, right? Like, because I do think, like, you know, I try to go back to physics sometimes and think about um, some of the laws in physics where. You talk the body emotion, staying in motion and just encouraging them like, hey, man, if if I start two steps behind you and well, I'm jogging and when I get one, when I get to when I'm jogging five, let me start over. So we got a, we have a five yard gap. I'm on the, I'm on the zero yard line. You're on the five yard line. When I get to the four yard line we're both, you you can now go and we're going to race to tw- we're going to race to the 20 yard line. And that momentum I have usually allows me to win win those first couple of steps. And so 
um, yes, to answer your question, like these, these are things that we, we, we talk about a lot at the major league level. Um, and this is, is, a, is a strong point of emphasis um, because we do think, and I think a lot of, a lot of people do work on it, but I think um, there is some, I think there's some correlation into, into guys being able to do as best as they can and maximizing their value as an outfielder. I like that. And then, so we always do a lightning round on the tail end of this. So I've got a few <laughs> questions for you and they're, they're quick questions for me, but uh, they can be as long as you want on the answer. So the first one actually piggybacks on this last one. So give us one must watch base runner and a must watch outfielder in pro baseball. If a young players here is watching and they want to, you know, be fundamentally sound in both those regards, who would you encourage them to check out? Ooh, man. Um, um, so a must a must watch base runner. Um, I would say check out Mookie Betts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the really cool things I saw, like, a, um, I just saw him take so many advances on like guys, like not paying attention. And it's like, he's always keeping his feet moving until he makes a decision that he's not going anymore. And I thought that was really, really cool. And he makes um, everything look so easy. And maybe that's because he keeps everything moving. But like, you remember that throw from the right field corner that it looked like he was literally just playing catch and you leave the young, ball, like <laughs> 280 feet, like it was nothing. It, it, there's probably yeah. something he said about the, the stay active part. No doubt about it. Yeah, I so mean, I feel like you can look at, you can look at Mookie for both of those things. Yeah. Right? That's like a good point. Play. There's a reason <laughs> he was like, an MVP, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, but if I had to like, if I had to like, maybe, um, you know, think about an outfielder, um, you know, I would probably, um, you know, actually, I know he's he's more versatile, but uh, Kike Hernandez, um, yeah. and and because, and I just say it because, like, once again, like when you look at where he ranks in terms of like speed mm-hmm. with a lot of outfielders, um, you know, he's not necessarily in, in the top echelon. But when you talk about guys that are, are maximizing their value and and being one of the better defenders, uh, when he's out there, he's been he's been really really good. Um, you know, so that's a guy like I think you could learn you could learn a few things from. That's a big one. That's a that's a Giants guy complimenting a Dodgers guy too. This is oh, I'm in trouble. This, this is uh, <laughs> unprecedented in the media. Oh, it's, it's been a, it's been an unprecedented year, so we might as well roll it, right? Hey, um, art of war. <laughs> the art of war. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, go. One of the things I always say is like the best guests are the retired guests because you can be honest, right? Like if I ask you in the middle of your career, what's the hardest pitch for you to hit? Like you're not going to shoot me straight because you never know who's listening. So <laughs> they don't want to give away their secrets, but you're retired and you can spill the beans. So what pitch for you was impossible to hit? Um, anything that was a breaking ball, man. I, I if it wasn't straight and it, if it moved, that I was in trouble, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, when you grow up in the softball, now you're gonna hit something yeah. small and just makes it more challenging. <laughs> so, in, in in to that in that vein, who absolutely dominated you during your in your career, and who did you love to face? Uh, who didn't dominate me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, first career ahead. hit off Clay, Clayton Kershaw. So, so maybe she just run with that. Maybe she just run with that one, right? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if I dominated anybody, but um. <laughs> Uh, I I do remember this, and and he he probably wouldn't, but so Scherzo, mm-hmm. um, when he first I remember when he first signed and mm-hmm. and actually the pro ball, his first game was against um the team I was on in the minor leagues, um the San Jose Giants, and he threw a seven inning um no hitter, and so I just remember not seeing not being a pitcher with the baseball. Um, we weren't doing spin rates and stuff at that time, but yeah. I'm pretty sure it probably was at a high spin rate. Yeah. Um, and so I felt absolutely no chance and completely dominated uh, by Scherzo. <laughs> it was that funky attack angle with a ball that took off before everybody was doing it. It was cool. So it was it was yeah. definitely unique. Um, that's a that's a good one. All right, so uh, we're gonna shift gears. We got to talk about about Project Limestone. So and I'll I'll give you a 
I'll, I'll say this. So uh, you, you retired and you were in town, came over to dinner at the house. My wife and I were, were in our kitchen talking with you. And I just remembered like, so my, my wife's uh, sister, Julia, runs a, a not-for-profit charity in Lewiston, Maine. And they do some, mm-hmm. some amazing stuff in the community with after-school programs and helping uh, Somalian and Sudanese uh, you know, immigrants to the country get adjusted to their new surroundings. And, I mean, she basically keeps the town running. And I heard the passion that she displays in your voice as you talked about it. Um, and obviously, the you know taking care of folks back home in the Bahamas is near and dear to you. So tell us a little bit more about this charity and, and you know, how it came about and what it is today. Yeah, and so... Um... I think athletics and academics has just played a really big role in my life. And, and so I kind of wanted just to make sure to create opportunities, um, for others who, you know, wanted to, um, have that, have some of the opportunities I had or even more and use those two, two, two vehicles as a resource to help them gain those things. And so, um, we just decided that, um, we wanted to use those two platforms to create, um, environments and spaces for young people to, to be curious, um, to be learners and, um, use that as motivation to like, maybe go after something, you know, that they probably thought that they couldn't, um, they couldn't achieve. And, you know, just in it, in it, I remember sitting down and just kind of thinking like, how do you, like, how do you do this? And it's so, it's funny because I, I love to tell the story about the name because so the Bahamas is made up of, of mostly limestone rock and, but limestone is a, is a really porous material. It, it by itself is, is, it's not very sturdy. Um, you know, wind and water would just kind of like demolish it. Um, and it's like made up of a bunch of different materials, right? So you got this, you got this rock, but like when it's cultivated the correct way, it, you can use it to build struct structures that stand the test of time. Like we have forts in the Bahamas from um, the 1700s that are made of limestone. And so the thought there is, first of all, it's like, you know what, if we do this thing together, then we have an opportunity to be really, really unique and really, really strong. Um, and so, you know, it started with that. And, um, you know, it's just always just been like, how do you continue to create, to give um, access to all, right? Create opportunities for all. And I think um, our goal is just always like, how do we create access? How do we, how do we give access to, um, to those who may not have it? That's awesome. Oh, it's, it's, it, I, I would encourage everybody to check it out. It's projectlimestone.org. Uh, I'm going to kick things off and make a donation myself. And I would, I would encourage everybody that's listened to, uh, to do so as well. Um, just cause it's a, it's a cool cause. And let's be honest, we need a lot more Anton Richardson's in the world. And, and it sounds like you're, you're working hard to mentor the next generation. And, uh, you know, so I'm also curious, you know, and I think it's, maybe it's, it's a loaded question to, to wrap up with, but, um, you know, you're, you're a black guy in baseball. And right mm-hmm, now it's, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are people that are speaking out with what's going on in the world. And, um, I'm sure you heard the, the podcast with Jimmy Rollins and Tori Hunter and Latroy Hawkins and Ryan Howard. I mean, it was outstanding to hear what they had gone through. I'm curious, you know, about your experiences, um, you know, both in the Bahamas as you tried to get in the baseball world, what you've experienced since you came here and, you know, and obviously just as importantly, like suggestions on how we as coaches, uh, parents and, and players in the game can, can work to make things better in these crazy times. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it is really, you know, when I reflect on it, um, Eric, it's, it's, it's really, it's a tough reflection time. You know what I mean? And you really do get emotional when you start to really consider some of the things that you would have, um, you know, had to endure. And, mm-hmm. And I think um, for me, like 
there's a lot of sadness there just because I guess I don't know if I'm naive or what it, or what it was, but it's just like you just kind of accepted what you accepted the treatment that you were receiving because it in because I thought that like this is normal and this is supposed to happen right and so um I just know that um I just know that I you know I'm I want to be um and I'm going to be for you know equality and 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 freedom and justice and I think more importantly is that you know it's motivated me and, and reminded me like why we are like doing Project Limestone, right? And it's, it's because we want to make sure that we continue to educate our young people. We want to make sure we continue to create access. We want to continue to make sure we empower them, um, for them to understand that, you know, that they do matter, um, no matter, no matter what circumstances, uh, society may tell them. Um, and then to, to your question about the coaches, I don't know if it's like uh, a correct answer in, in the situation, but I do know that, um, I, at least I really feel strongly that's important to just reach out, you know, reach yeah. out to your players and um, all of your players and yeah. and just kind of find out how this time is affecting them and allow that to drive the conversation. Because I do think if you go in there premeditated, it's just, it's just not going to be authentic. And right now we just need some truth right now, right? We need some truth. We need some authenticity um, more than ever. And, and players feel that. And I think, um, you know, um, we just need to make sure that we're giving that to them. And I would even say, like, you know, you asked about for the players, like even even with our coaches, right? Like even with, with each other, um, yeah. just making sure we're reaching out and just being authentic. And if, if you ask somebody, like, how they're feeling about it, like, make sure you're listening mm-hmm. um, and make sure you, you're hearing what they're, they're saying and you're hearing their story. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just asking because it's the cool thing to do right now, don't waste your time because you, you're just not going to have, you're not going to have that impact that you need to have to help that change. And I was just saying, if you if you care, and if you feel something in your heart and in your belly, um, yeah, like don't ignore that nudge. Um, go ahead and explore that curiosity. Ask questions. Um, reach out to your friends. Get lots of different perspectives, um, and help and help you. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's no different than you know in baseball. We hate saying this, right? We hate saying. Um, and the question is like, why do we do that? And we hate the answer that says because we've always done it. Yeah. And so. Um, I think more now than ever, like, you know, if you're in this baseball community, um, this is one of those things that that's, you know, because we always done it is is not going to be acceptable. And we need to explore why things are the way they are um, and just really challenge um, our actions and make sure to reflect our true thoughts. Right. And not necessarily we're not just um, we haven't just adapted um, or adopted, sorry, um, actions and behaviors that society has um passed down to us and just making sure that those are those are ours and we have we have challenged those things that we know um and those are our true true feelings and emotions that are being displayed I had so, a, thanks for thanks for that opportunity to talk about that i, I think it's a it's a good um i think anytime you hear like points reiterated like that's where it's things get really really compelling and you know it's interesting as i was listening to you say that um so i had a conversation with jacoby Brissett last week jacoby's the quarterback mm-hmm. of the indianapolis colts he's a he's an african-american male playing what is you know traditionally been a white position you know it's he, he made the comment he's like if you watch any movie you know basically the quarterback the the star of the movie is always a white guy and i'm like i never thought about that he pointed it out to me and you know, he, the, you know, I asked him like, what can we do better? Like, where, where does this start? And he said exactly what you just said. He's like, you have to have the conversations, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just speak to it because you never know when you're going to come up with something that, that is going to make somebody feel comfortable in a situation where they weren't comfortable previously. Um, cause you just don't know about it if you don't ask. 
Uh, no doubt. So it was, it was good no feedback doubt. and it's good to hear from you because you're, you're one of the more articulate guys out there. So I, I appreciate you, um, you know, singing the important words. Um, yeah, so with, that, with that said, um, awesome, awesome time. I appreciate you joining us as always. Um, you're one of my favorite people to catch up with. Uh, folks can find you on both Twitter and Instagram. It's Antoine Richardson 242, or excuse me, it's A Richardson 242 on Twitter. Um, and we'll be sure to spread the word again. It's projectlimestone.org. Um, really, really cool pro- uh, project that you got working in the Bahamas and we're going to make sure to support it. So, um, thanks so much for taking the time, man. And we, we wish you the best, um, with the season ahead. Hopefully we can get underway soon. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt, man. I um I appreciate you having me on. It's been really, really fun. Um and much love, man. And yeah, please do if you if you check out anything, even if you don't check out my personal stuff, please do check out Project Limestone. Um and and just like us. Like us on, on Instagram. Um and and just kind of follow us, man. Um and any support and encouragement um is always is always loved. Um and that could just be a word of encouragement. So thank you. Chris, much love, brother. And um, anytime, look forward to, to catching up in person soon. Absolutely. Hope to see you soon. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.